Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What are the limits of forgiveness. I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. It's almost banal at this point to say that we live in a very polarized society. But we have to keep saying it because it's an obstacle to solving almost every major political problem. From voting rights to public health issues to climate change. We simply can't move forward if half the population hates the other half. Conflict is part of democratic politics. And this is a big country with lots of people who hold totally incompatible visions of the future. But we need a political system that can manage these differences without sacrificing its basic legitimacy. This will require lots of work at the policy level. It will also require something on the individual level, namely forgiveness or something like it. We normally think of forgiveness as something that happens between individuals. But what does it mean to think of forgiveness as a political virtue. I reached out to Lucy Alaise, a philosopher at Johns Hopkins University. Alaise studies forgiveness and punishment, and she brings a unique life experience to these sorts of questions. She grew up in apartheid South Africa, and that experience shapes her approach to the problem of forgiveness. So we talk about why she thinks forgiveness and accountability are compatible why it's important not to define people by their worst manifestations, and whether she believes a democracy can survive without forgiveness. Lucy Lace, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. How did you start thinking seriously about forgiveness? Was it personal? Was it purely philosophically motivated? Actually, it wasn't philosophically motivated initially. I'd been working on very different topics in philosophy, mostly Immanuel Kant's metaphysics. So really quite unconnected. (laughs) God bless you. (laughs) So it was partly personal and partly political. Personally, somebody who had been abusive to me actually suggested to me that I ought to forgive him. In fact, his exact words were, you need to do some serious thinking about forgiveness. And I thought this was quite an obnoxious thing to say. But also, it just sort of puzzled me. I sort of thought, what would it even mean, really? 
And that's, I think, actually one of the most basic philosophical questions about anything is what does that even mean? But then the other part of the context was the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which it wasn't really supposed to be centrally about forgiveness. It was supposed to be about truth and amnesty and letting victims tell their stories. But it, forgiveness turned out to be quite a prominent role in it, partly because of, it was chaired by the late, sadly, very recently late Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who, through his sort of Christian viewpoint, made forgiveness very prominent. And the Truth Commission was sometimes theorized as being about what people call restorative rather than retributive justice, which I think is questionable, but basically people weren't going to be prosecuted. That was what the amnesties involved. The Truth Commission was characterized by some really sort of astonishing expressions of forgiveness. You know, victims of absolute atrocities expressing forgiveness that you could just barely understand. And also, I think it exemplified some real problems of forgiveness when victims were sort of pressured to forgive. So one of the features of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was these forums where victims of human rights abuses and atrocities could talk about what had happened to them. And then at the end of their telling their story, one of the commissioners would say, and do you forgive? Which I think was just a, a really inappropriate moral pressure and, and, and sh shouldn't have been happening. So so I think their forgiveness is a really um, amazingly puzzling philosophical and personal thing. But it's something which I think actually can be almost quite mystical, but also which has a lot of problems potentially associated with it. Well, use the word mystical, and I'm so tempted to to go down that road because that <laughs> that's just catches my attention for lots of reasons. But uh, I'll resist to go too far off the tracks here, and maybe you can answer my question about mysticism by just kind of telling me what is it that you think forgiveness means? How have you come to define it in your own mind and in your own work since? So I I think that forgiveness is most fundamentally a release from blame and anger. And there's debate among philosophers, of course, philosophers disagree about everything, about exactly what that means. But I think it's fundamentally an emotional change. So it's a change of heart, a change in how you feel towards someone. But it's important in thinking about that, that emotions have content and are susceptible to certain kinds of evaluations. So they're not just, anger isn't just like an itch that's just sort of a brute feeling. When you're angry with someone, I can say to you, like, come on, they didn't really mean it, or it wasn't really such a big deal, and I'm giving you reasons. And anger doesn't always respond to reasons. Emotions can be recalcitrant, but it really can respond to reasons. So we talk about anger as being appropriate or inappropriate, disproportionate, all those things mean that we think it has some content. There's something that it's about, and it can be appropriate, and it can be warranted, it can be apt. And I think what's centrally puzzling about forgiveness is that it's a release from warranted blaming attitudes. So a lot of the philosophical work on forgiveness, you know, starts by noting that it's fundamentally different from excusing, justifying, and accepting even though we sometimes talk loosely is it with all of these things as the same, but actually they, it's fundamentally different. So if you're angry with me and I give you a, a really plausible excuse, your anger might just disappear because you come to see that I actually, I, it wasn't my fault. Or if I show you that what I did really was justified, again, there isn't anything to be angry about. So what's puzzling about forgiveness is that 
You don't see the thing as justified. You don't see it as excused. You see it as genuinely wrong and genuinely culpable, but somehow you cease holding it against the person. Well, what then does it mean to hold someone accountable, right? I mean, is that compatible with forgiveness? I know you talk about forgiveness as involving, as you just did, a release from blame, but without absolving the other person of guilt. So how is that different from, or is it even different from holding someone accountable? Can these things happen at the same time? Or are they different acts? I think they can happen at the same time. So I think blame and anger can be ways of holding people accountable. And that's why philosophers who defend blame and anger will argue that that's part of their function. But also, I mean, there are all sorts of other ways of holding people accountable, like punishment is a way of holding people accountable. And I think these ways can be compatible with forgiving. Forgiving involves a release from having an act held against you in the way the person emotionally sees you. So when I stop resenting you, I stop seeing this action as characterizing the way I feel about you. So going back to this idea that emotions have content, they involve ways of seeing things and ways of seeing people. When you're angry with someone, you see them as the person who did this thing. You see them as a in a particular way. And I think forgiveness involves a release from that. So is that to say that forgiveness is fundamentally an internal act? It, it's a It's a change of feelings inside the forgiver and almost transforms the forgiver more than it does the forgiven. So again, philosophers debate about that. So lots of philosophers think that speaking forgiveness is important and that forgiveness releases people from obligations and that forgiveness is a ritual and that forgiveness is a process. I think that it is fundamentally a change of heart. So I think that it is fundamentally something inside the forgiver. But I don't think that we as human beings, exist totally separately from our attitudes towards each other. So your attitude towards another person is something that exists between you. And forgiveness, I think, most fundamentally takes place in interpersonal relationships. And we deeply and fundamentally care about the attitudes people have to us, especially those we care about. So a release from blame from a person you care about even though the change is in them, but it's a change that the wrongdoer can really deeply want. What do you think motivates forgiveness? Right? I mean, there are, there are lots of traditions or worldviews in which you forgive because that's what God wants you to do, right? That there's some kind of transcendent moral justification for forgiving. I'm not sure that you approach it in that way, but what is it that you think impels or inspires or motivates or even justifies the act of forgiveness, which is, as you say, difficult and, and sometimes unrewarding and unsatisfying. So I'm very ecumenical about that question. I think there can just be an enormous, a wide range, actually, of motivations. So there are religious worldviews. There are sometimes just sort of reasons of mental hygiene. It's this dwelling on this resentment is really poison, just distracting me. And yeah, it's really bad for me. So I'm going to undertake to forgive. So I think there can really be a range of reasons that are all compatible with it being forgiveness. Some philosophers think that it's only forgiveness if it's done for the right moral reasons. But I think they over-moralize forgiveness. What do you mean by that, over-moralize? They see it as something that is too subject to judgments about what you ought to do. So for example, going back to some of those astonishing examples of forgiveness in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Some philosophers want to say that 
forgiving someone who hasn't appropriately atoned and repented and made amends is failing to stand up to wrongdoing and therefore it's the wrong thing to do and you shouldn't do it. And I, I just think that there's something wrong about being in the business of telling people like that, that they oughtn't to forgive. Yeah, I think that comes from, you know, there's something very deep in us that, um, well, there's a will to punish, right? Yes. Punish people who have done wrong things. How do you square that, I think, universal desire to forgive with this imperative to punish wrongdoing? I mean, I assume you would agree with this, right? Some things really do demand punishment. And I guess the question is, can we forgive and punish at the same time? I mean, I actually think we can. I, I think it's not typical, but I don't actually think they're in tension with each other. It's going to depend a bit on what you think punishment is and what you think mm. justifies punishment. So I don't think that punishment needs to be vindictive vengeance or an all-out desire for annihilation and imposition of suffering or something. You can think of punishment as the way we condemn wrongdoing, so a collective social condemnation, or you can think of punishment as upholding the law by imposing a penalty that you announced in advance would be imposed for this kind of transgression of the law. And those things are important. You know, we should condemn wrongdoing, and I think actually we can't have justice without the rule of law. So those things are important, but I actually see them as quite separate or potentially separable from you're having resentful or blaming feelings of someone. So you could condemn something and impose some penalty while not having blaming feelings, while actually having very charitable feelings towards the person. Well, I like the way that you put it. You talk about forgiveness as the only way for all of us as flawed moral agents, which we all are, to move forward and not be forever fixed or defined by our worst choices. I mean, that seems to be an absolute political, social necessity. I think so. I think it is, although I also think that we can sometimes move forward in other ways. So I, I think there are forms of reconciliation and acceptance that fall short of forgiveness, but can also play important roles. Do you think you can forgive someone who doesn't want to be forgiven or who doesn't accept forgiveness? I mean, does the act still carry any meaning in that case? Yes, I think it does. In fact, I think you can forgive the dead. Mm. You're changing your orientation to the person. As I said before, some philosophers argue about whether or not you can forgive people who haven't repented. And I think for most of us, that's harder. Yeah. Certainly the conventional understanding of forgiveness, I think. It feels like you can't forgive if there's not an admission of guilt, right? I mean, without that, it seems the whole act just kind of falls apart. Or am I thinking of it the wrong way? The, the sort of central paradigmatic case would be an admission of guilt, an apology, somebody making some amends, you're acknowledging that they've made the amends, you're accepting the apology, and moving on. But what I think of what forgiveness is, the kind of change of heart that it involves. I think you can have that change of heart in the absence of those things. For most of us, it's much harder to. I mean, there are definitely people who express themselves to be doing that. People who express forgiveness for someone who's just like shot somebody in their family or, again, in those TRC examples, people who were expressing forgiveness for people who'd carried out 
torture and murder and atrocities. So, so people say that they're doing that. And what do you say to someone who wants to forgive or is trying to forgive, maybe even failed to forgive because they're confronted by someone that they think has committed some wrong to them or to others, and that person or persons refuses to acknowledge that they did anything wrong in the first place? I don't think you have to forgive in general. Mm. I think that forgivingness is a virtue, and you couldn't live and have healthy relationships without being prepared to forgive a reasonable amount of stuff a reasonable amount of the time. But I don't think for some particular thing that's been done to you, I think you're entitled to choose not to forgive, in fact. So that can be psychologically unhealthy, but it can actually be perfectly psychologically fine. So as we said earlier, that being eaten up with resentment can be damaging. But there are ways of not being eaten up with resentment that don't involve forgiving. So you can just put somebody out of your mind. I think it's hardest to not forgive and move forward with someone in a relationship. But you don't have to move forward with someone in a relationship. If you just decide, I'm not going to continue to be in a relationship with this person, and I'm going to put them out of my mind, and you succeed in doing that, I don't think you also have to forgive them. I don't think it's something that they're due. It's not something that they're entitled to. I think going back to forgiveness being at least sometimes a little bit mystical, I think it's fundamentally something gifted and not something to which people are entitled. And that's why there's something problematic about somebody saying, you ought to forgive me. You should think about forgiving me. Because they're not entitled to assert that. Yeah, it almost seems like acceptance may be a kind of alternative sometimes to forgiveness in those cases, right? Where you just simply accept that someone is the way they are or something is the way it is and there's nothing you can do about that. You don't forgive that or them, but you just simply accept yeah. it and decide to move on without being weighed down by you know, anger or resentment or whatever. Yes, so I think that can be a perfectly legitimate alternative to forgiving. So one thing I would say to somebody who's struggling to forgive is give yourself a break. You don't actually have to Maybe you really want to and it's meaningful and important to you, so maybe you'll get there in the end. But also, actually being angry with someone who's really wronged you is acceptable and there are other alternatives. It's not that the only alternatives are forgiving and vindictive vengeance. There's a lot of stuff in between. As Lucy just said, we can think of forgiveness as one of several tools you can use to move forward after someone has wronged you. But should we think of forgiveness as a political tool, especially in a polarized society? That's what I'll ask the philosopher Lucy Elaise after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. 
But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I want to talk about forgiveness in politics. And I'll just say, anyone who listens to this show knows that my politics are on the left. And there's a version of this conversation where it's framed either explicitly or implicitly as a, you know, so how do we forgive all those awful Trump voters? You know, something like that. And I want to avoid that for lots of reasons, many of which we'll get into. But the main one is that I think that's, too boring and simplistic and condescending, and it would undercut the spirit of the conversation I want to try to have with you. And so I just wanted to throw that out there right now before yeah. we get into some of the nuance here and what are frankly some difficult, unanswerable questions. So with that caveat out of the way, we are very obviously living in a very polarized society right now. We all know that. And we don't normally think of forgiveness as a political tool or a political virtue, but do you think that we should? I'm especially interested in your views on this because you have the history in South Africa, which is obviously a very fraught history that has been, you know, experienced this in very concrete, very recent ways. So I think that not hating people is politically important. Actually, I, you know, I think everything in this space is very complex. Almost everything I want to say, I want to say on the one hand and on the other hand, and then on another hand, because um, yeah. there are some really hateful things that people do. You know, so if you think back to people supporting apartheid, I grew up during apartheid. Apartheid was one of the evil injustices of the 20th century. It was an atrocity. It was evil. And I grew up in white South Africa and, you know, everybody supported it. Or let me say... The majority of the white electorate, because we had a whites only electorate, voted for the apartheid party. And in the last apartheid elections, the next biggest group voted for the party to the right of that. So apartheid wasn't like bad enough for them. So most of these people supported this thing. And this thing that they supported was evil and deeply unjust. But were they all evil people? That's not so obvious to me. I mean, I, I had a great aunt who voted for the apartheid government all her life, or at least most of her life. And she was a very warm, bubbly, affectionate Christian person who lived in a small conservative Afrikaans farming community. And she supported this evil for most of her life. Maybe towards the end of her life, I'm not sure she did, because I know she left her 
conservative Afrikaans church and joined a multiracial church. So, but for all I know, she continued to support the party. And so, but there's this complicated thing where on the one hand, this person is, it's not plausible that they're an evil person. On the other hand, they are actually supporting evil. On another hand, you want to say, well, they've grown up in this indoctrinated system. The media is, so in, in South Africa, when I was growing up, there was complete press censorship and complete control of the education system. America has sort of astonishingly managed to achieve something with a similar effect <laughs> by creating just completely separate press ecosystems. So a person could grow up in just this ecosystem that only gives them access to one side of information. And you think, well, that sort of helps you understand how a person can have these beliefs. And then on another hand, I want to say, but it's still not excusing. I mean, whatever apartheid propaganda told her about maybe the so-called homelands that Black South Africans ruled themselves independently in the homelands, that was one of the myths about apartheid. You know, maybe you believed that propaganda, but still you basically knew that the system involved not letting Black people vote, giving Black people worse schools. You knew who was doing what jobs. You, you knew that Black people weren't allowed on the beach. The beach. You couldn't not know that. And I sort of feel the same here. Like there's a way in which I want to think, well, people are in these media systems with this access to information that it makes it hard to totally blame them. But then at the same time, I think, I don't think that's totally exculpatory. I think that somebody who's really thinking about it can see their way through that. So just I want to say it's sort of it's complicated how much you want to see people as blameworthy. Yeah, something I've noticed living in a place now where my politics are out of step with a lot of the people around me. And let me just be incredibly overwhelmingly clear about this. The politics of the South are not at all comparable to the politics of apartheid South Africa. Okay, now that I've said that, something I have noticed is that if you can find a way to engage people in ways that don't activate some of those you know, natural defenses, you can cut through some of the performative identity signaling stuff and you can find a common ground. You can find something human there. That's not necessarily about forgiveness, maybe, but it is about seeing people in three dimensions. It is about maybe not judging people by what you think or what is their worst manifestation. I mean, how can we better do that? Yeah. I I think it's um, actually interestingly connected to forgiveness, seeing people as sort of fundamentally, at least potentially better than the worst things they're saying and doing. And what I think is so important about that, you need to give people a way to back down. If you want people to change, you have to make it possible for them to back down and then accept their backing down. I, I think that we have, as human beings, a very deep and fundamental need to see ourselves as making sense, as basically justified. In fact, I think to see ourselves as basically oriented to the good. And I think we need that in a quite deep level in a way that like, you know, I don't have a good sense of direction and I'm not a very good navigator or I like rock climbing, but, you know, I took it up late in life and I, I'm not a great rock climber. You know, we like to be admired, but I don't need at a deep level to be seen as a better navigator than I am. But I think we all do need to be seen as justified. And so when we are engaged in something or existing in something that isn't justified, we all have, I think, a very deep human tendency to rationalize and to engage in self-deception and to engage in delusional ideology that makes sense of why we're really entitled. And you don't break through that by telling a person that they're terrible, because 
to break through, you need to give a person a way out, which still sees them as a decent person. Yeah, you're making me think of something you said to me when you and I first spoke. And you said that we need to make sense of ourselves. And that need makes us vulnerable to self-deception. Can you explain a bit what you meant? So I think of this at two levels. One at a political level, and one could be like just sort of a basic psychological level. So at the political level, I think that we exist in conditions of injustice to varying degrees. And so we're wrongfully situated in relation to other human beings. The, the very ways we exist in the world are in tension with some other people's rights being properly realized. And we are just sort of systematically situated in these kinds of relations. So if you think about just like going through the world and existing, you know, like you can't not be buying plastic all the time. You just want to get yourself some lunch and you've bought some more plastic or you just want to, I think I mentioned to you that I have spent a bit of time thinking about relations to beggars. So in both Johannesburg and San Diego, where I was living until quite recently, you want to go out and meet a friend for breakfast and you can't do that without sort of walking over homeless people. And now you sort of think, well, it's not, I didn't create this problem, but also there's something sort of horrifying about the idea that you're going out to get breakfast and you're walking over, it's just, it's just horrifying. If you start paying attention to it, you just, you're existing in this circumstance in which what should be a completely neutral and ordinary act also seems to involve doing something sort of shocking and, and terrible. And it's really hard to make sense of it. It's really hard to think about like, was there a non-ethically tainted way for you to dress yourself and feed yourself? I mean, there probably wasn't. And so you want to say, well, none of this is my fault. I didn't create all these things. And I think that's also true. But what we need to not do is look away from the fact that these injustices exist and we exist in them. But I think that because it's so hard to take it on board and make sense of how you can exist and be a basically decent person while being situated in all of this, we have a very deep need to screen off from our awareness these entitlements of others that are inconsistent with these ways of living that we're embedded in. And so I think that makes us prone to self-deception. And then at the much more personal level, I think we all sort of exist in the world with like emotional patterns of interpretation that we acquired in childhood that we aren't aware of that probably also at some level involve making sense of ourselves that trigger defenses for things that the person we're dealing with isn't actually attacking. And we don't fully understand that. And so we're sort of trying to make sense of ourselves and we find ways of rationalizing the things we're doing and seeing ourselves as entitled. I think a lot about ideologies and the role they play individually and collectively. And certainly one thing they do is they give us a story about the world that makes sense. Yes. But in order, in order to make the world make sense, they reduce the complexity of it. They simplify it. And like all stories, they also tell us who's good and who's bad. And yes. what do you know? We're always the good side in our own ideological stories. Do you think our political ideologies blinker our moral intuitions or make it harder, infinitely harder to see the good in the other, whoever the other happens to be? Yes, I think they definitely do. And I think we definitely tell ourselves stories that are too simple. At the same time, I want to say one of those, on the other hand, things, which is that 
I think we're all to some extent self-deceived and rationalizing. But I think that we're not all equally deluded and not all ideologies are equally bad. And not all of the ways in which we're situated in this is equally pernicious. So I wouldn't want to conclude from this a kind of a relativism of like, oh, well, we're all just equally bad. I, I think there are some really quite terrifying deluded views. But we can also be aware of how we are telling ourselves simpler stories about those people than is really fair. Oh, yeah. Look, I 100% agree with everything you just said. I guess part of the story you tell about forgiveness that we're talking about here is that, you know, on some level, people, all of us are incredibly complicated creatures. And we're also all sort of ridiculous, mm. contradictory creatures in our own ways. And we naturally assume the best of ourselves and often the, the worst of our opponents because, well, that's flattering in lots of obvious ways. But that doesn't mean that there's no one truly bad in the world, but that inclination is worth remembering every day. Absolutely. I mean, there are some sort of starkly terrible injustices like apartheid, but then there are lots of things where it's complicated. And we, we should be careful about being too sure about our beliefs, and we should be cautious of thinking we're too clear about having the right answer. Yeah, for sure. You know, we were talking about blame earlier. And, you know, the thing about blame is that it, it's tinged with the feelings we have about the motivations of the other person or the other people. You know, they did X bad thing because they're a bad person with bad intentions. Do you think that kind of moral calculus, which I think comes pretty naturally to a lot of us, do you think that that is too simple? I think in a way it's too simple. I think there are a few things about it. So one is everybody's complicated and most people have some good and some bad inclinations and intentions and it, you know, one can learn about them. But I think people do have some bad intentions sometimes and are sometimes actually genuinely trying to do some bad things. But I would say when we're talking at the political level, I think we should be careful. I think constructive blame and forgiveness or all these sort of series of emotions in an interpersonal relationship where you really know someone can be constructive. But when we project it onto people voting for the opposition party in another state who we've never met or at a rally that we're seeing on TV, we actually don't know these people. And it's a bit like the, the way in which you imagine you somehow know celebrities. It's sort of like this fictional feeling of a relationship <laughs> that isn't actually one. I think we're disproportionately imagining that we're engaging with these people that we're not. So one way of, of not being too angry with them is just realizing that you're sort of imagining that you're in a relationship with them and you're trying to convince them of something and getting them to see something. But actually, you're, you're not. You've never met them most of the time. And so it's just not helping you at all. Yeah, I just I think it can be very hard to accept that a good person, a decent person can hold really ugly beliefs or do really ugly things. And I know, you know, someone will hear that and they'll say, well, if a person holds ugly beliefs, then by definition, they're an ugly person. And I suppose there's a logic to that. But I don't know. Again, like we're saying, people are weird and fluid and full of contradictions. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to politics in particular, certain identities get activated and we feel obliged to affirm those identities in order to make them more real or valid in the eyes of other people. But a lot of times we're just swept up in forces, cultural, political, emotional, beyond our control in some cases. And, and in some cases, there's no real roots to it. You know, I mean, I, 
I think about it this way. You know, I did an interview with a British filmmaker, Dia Khan, who kind of embedded with American white supremacists and, and made a just like, I think, three fantastic documentaries about that experience. And, you know, so, something I thought about when I was watching them and interviewing her is how if you drop someone in a completely different context under completely different conditions with completely different incentives, then they could easily be a completely different person. And something that came up when I was talking to her is, I mean, I was watching that film or those films thinking, well, this could be me, a different version of me, right? If I was born in a different place to different parents under different conditions and my life was empty or hard and I had this hole in my life and I encountered these people at this time, I could easily have found myself along a very different trajectory, a trajectory that from my vantage point now would be horrific, but it can happen. And I guess I say all that to say, again, we're very complicated and flawed and, and very rarely are we totally irredeemable or unworthy of forgiveness. I think that's completely right that almost nobody is completely irredeemable and we all should have some appropriate humility about how much of what we take to be our right views, even if they are right, are a function of who brought us up and not so much our own intrinsic virtue and how different we might have been had we been brought up somewhere differently. At the same time, I always want to go back to thinking that there is still some culpability. People are still responsible for thinking about the world and failing to think about the world. And, you know, I don't think the white South Africans I grew up with, I mean, there were things they couldn't have failed to see, so they were choosing to look away from. And there's some culpability there. So then I want to go back to, on the other hand, and say, like, well, you know, we need to try to understand what kinds of emotional needs or unhappinesses or whatever it is is making people feel safety in conspiracy theories. And then I want to go back to the other side and saying, well, but I don't want to be giving all my attention to the emotional needs of the people supporting this evil thing at the risk of not giving yeah. it to the victims of these yeah, terrible 100%. things. So I think it's just very complicated. And then another thing in America that I see that sort of adds a complication to me, and I'm just an observer here in America, but there seems to be not much interest in understanding or forgiveness or lack of anger from the political opponents that you're trying to think about having charity towards. And so I just spent a little bit of time last week on some right-wing media sites, Breitbart and something else. I encountered the charming term woke-tard for the first time. Hadn't come across that one. Charming. But also I encountered this meme with pictures of children in masks saying, never forgive, never forget. Yeah. And just this vitriolic anger... And on the one hand, it makes me think, well, okay, this is putting me off anger quite seriously. You know, there are progressives who want to defend the progressive role of anger. And I'm just making me think, well, actually, let's be very, very cautious about anger. But on the other hand, it's just making me think, what, what is one doing when, is, when one is extending charity with so little reciprocity? And so I, th I think that's a very challenging feature of this situation. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> something else I feel like has to be said, right? Our political conflicts are not simply the result of misunderstandings or mm. confusion. There are truly incompatible visions of the good, of justice. And there are people mm. who really do hate, who really do want to live in a world that I find intolerable. And these people do not want forgiveness, will not accept it, probably don't deserve it. And they have to be defeated, maybe forgiven later, but they have to be defeated first. And sometimes knowing the difference between all that this is hard, but that is real. 
But that is real. That That is real. I wonder, you know, we all live in our own bubbles, but I, I wonder about the difference between the absolutely cynical political actors who are leading things, you know, the Hannity's and the Mitch McConnell's and that, who really do know what's going on, who really do know when what they're saying is not true, who really do know that Biden won the election. And the people in the base who, you know, if, if every single source you've ever taken news from is telling you that there was a corrupt election, there's very different culpability there. And what's sort of complicated about that is that in a way, I don't think you're really getting anger and vitriol from the Mitch McConnells. You're just getting cynical, calculating, power play, game playing. Which is worse. It's so yeah, which worse. is so much worse. Sometimes we're not ready to forgive. And sometimes we can't. But can we move forward as individuals and as a society without forgiveness? That's coming up after one last quick break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, getting back as we kind of wander away towards the end here to the political realities here, right? I mean, the cycle of resentment can't go on forever. I mean, that's just a political dead end. We, we have to live together. What other choice is there? We have to live with people who we think, for whatever reason, have made you know egregious, dangerous decisions that caused needless suffering. But what are we going to do, right? I mean, we have to break that and we have to move forward, you know? And, and I guess the question for you really is like, Look, we can just take for granted that lots of people won't or can't forgive fellow citizens for what they believe, what they've done. How do we move forward in the absence of that? Can we move forward in the absence of that? So I think one can move forward without forgiveness. I think there are forms of acceptance and reconciliation that require less than acceptance. I think it's very hard to move forward if you can't get beyond hatred. And I, I think that needs to be got beyond. I, I also think that you've said you position yourself on the left and you're thinking about just relating to the millions of your country people who voted for Trump and you might feel angry with them for voting for Trump or supporting Trump or, or you didn't want to frame it straight like that. But suppose one is thinking about that. I think in a way, anger is at a number of levels just not going to be a very productive way of thinking about them. So firstly, these are complicated people who might be struggling, who might be one paycheck away from bankruptcy because of a medical emergency, all sorts of things going on in their lives. So I think it's appropriate to think these people's lives are complex and involve all sorts of problems and we should have some charity towards them. But then also, really importantly, to be thinking about the material conditions that make so many of the people in the poorer states in this country and the states in this country with fewer people who have got higher education to be so angry and resentful. And maybe some of that is stuff that actually like 
liberal democratic elites really should be thinking very seriously about their own implication in those relations. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you said, you know, how not to hate people, you know, because I, one problem with forgiveness is that it's a kind of strange power play. Um, it implies a, a moral hierarchy, and that is politically <laughs> problematic. And so maybe we are yes. on some level talking yes. about how not to hate people with whom we profoundly disagree. I mean, maybe that's just a more practical goal here. I think it is. You know, I also love one of the papers you sent me, you had a, um, a Hannah Arendt quote at the top. You know, she's, I think, one of the best, if not the best political theorists of the 20th century. And you had a quote from her, but it was something about how forgiveness is the only response to a transgression that doesn't merely react and in reacting just kind of perpetuate the cycle, but instead it acts anew unexpectedly. Yes. It like creates a space for like a new path forward. And, and good God, do we need that? And I think most fundamentally, when I think about what forgiveness is and the way in which going back to what we were saying at the very beginning, the way in which it doesn't hold the act against someone. I think it most fundamentally sees people with an openness and an optimism yeah. that sees them as not being fixed in yeah. stone by this thing that they've done or this attitude that they've had, but sees them as people who can be something different and can be something better. And I think we, we need to see people with, as having that openness. Yeah. Do you think a democracy, any democracy, not just ours, is sustainable if we can't find some way to, if not forgive, at least not despise each other? So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, so I think a lot about forgiveness, but maybe again, this isn't the primary thing we should be thinking about. Maybe we should be worrying about is the real threat to democracy that there are these people who are angry and not forgiving, or is the real threat to democracy the material conditions in which people become so alienated? that they become susceptible to the populism, that they make other people so angry by being susceptible to the populism. I yeah. don't want to say that in a way that makes it exculpatory, but... No, I agree. I mean, I just think we need to constantly going back to, is, is democracy stable with the degree of inequality that we have in this country and the world? To the extent that we have democracy, I just don't see how it can be. On that, you and I are in perfect agreement. <laughs> Let me just ask, I'm just curious, as someone who thinks so deeply about these things, I mean, do you have a philosophy of forgiveness that you practice in your own life? I mean, how do you think about, how do you deal with people that you find objectionable for whatever reason? That's such a great question. And I'm not even sure that I really do. I think I do have to try to remind myself to see people charitably. But I, th I think that's a hard thing to do. I mean, there's so many different kinds of contexts, but, you know, there's a political kind of context we've been talking about. There's people who've just, like, really annoyed you in a relationship. And then there's somebody who's not fully competent and you want to be annoyed with them. And then you think, like, this is just some guy, like, trying to do their job. And why am I getting so annoyed with them? So I think we have to keep trying to think about people charitably. I think most people are roughly oriented towards the good and trying to make sense of themselves and deal with the conditions that they're in and just trying to be charitable towards people. Yeah, I mean, this is where some of the disagreements I would have with my more conservative friends in graduate school was on this question of how plastic and contextual people are. I think people are infinitely contextual creatures and they will respond to their environments in all kinds of ways. And, you know, if the environment is broken and flawed, it will produce broken and flawed people. If the environment is good and just, it will produce good and just people. And I think that's worth remembering. And in some ways, this conversation is about forgiveness, but 
It's really about empathy and maybe it's limits. <laughs> there are limits to empathy as there are to forgiveness. forgiveness. And none of us are perfect and none of us are infinitely wise and will stumble, but it's at least worth thinking about these things and our own flaws and our own contradictions so that we can more charitably see other people and their own flaws and their own contradictions. And that just seems to be a social good. I think that's right. I also, I mean, you asked me about what I do myself. And I think that people who I find myself not forgiving, of whom there are some, I try to reflect on what what is really going on here? What am I really doing? And when I think about it, I think what we fundamentally want often when we're angry with someone is some kind of recognition. You, you're wanting someone to see what they've done to you and how it hurt you and why it hurt you and to care about that. And I think that's not such a terrible thing to want. So unforgivingness and anger get a bad press. But if that's what you want, it's not a terrible thing to want. So I think also give yourself a break for not wanting to forgive someone in those circumstances is a thing you can do. Okay, you know what? I like that. Let's <laughs> We'll leave it right there. Lucy Lace, I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being here. It was really great chatting to you, Sean. Thanks so much. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.